0: Okay, welcome everyone to the Two Age Sojourner podcast, I'm Andre Beck, and uh, I am hosting today because Mike and I just can't get it together to keep doing our pilgrim theology stuff, uh, but and Mike's also geeking out on some Kleinian stuff, which is okay, we don't mind that, we love a bit of Klein on the Two Age Sojourner, uh, but I am very happy to introduce to you Dr. Eric Orton.
1: Hey Eric. Hi everyone. Out in podcast land, nice to be with you today. <laughs> That's
0: right. It's basically my mom and my dad and my brother and like a few other people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is fine. I'm sure they're all very interesting people. That's absolutely worth it. That's good.
0: Um, now, uh, just to say that it's my it's my holiday. I'm on I'm on half time, uh, uh, on a break for the week, and so we're just keeping it light. We're keeping it chilled today. And really, I wanted to. Um, uh, Bring Eric onto onto the podcast because um, I think Eric is is awesome, and I want you guys to know about Eric. And also, if you're like me, I did not pay him to say that. <laughs> well, I do. I, I went. I first met um, uh, Eric because he was he was running a language refresher at Hill Theological College. In fact, Eric, I we should I should probably get you to say who you are before I start going off on my own mission. But yeah, who are you, Eric?
1: So. Uh... I I'm, I am I'm a sinner. Um and I, I'm a tutor I, I'm a tutor in Hebrew and Old Testament at Oak Hill College in London. Are the
0: two related? Uh, yeah. Is your sinner related uh, to being an Oak Hill tutor? <laughs> only
1: ironically in the sense that, that I very much did not deserve it, but God still graciously opened up the door there, you know?
0: <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, that's very I've, fun.
1: I've been in London since uh twenty sixteen. Before that I was in Canada for ten years. Um, before that in Edinburgh, actually, so married with two kids.
0: Right. Cool. Um, and so, uh, I want to come back and talk about that. Cause the only thing I know about Canadian Christianity is memoirs of an ordinary pastor.
1: Mm. Um, that's that's a fantastic a, book.
0: Yeah. Great book. Really, really enjoyed. It. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, so I met Eric, uh, for the first time, actually, Eric started lecturing there after. After I, I'd already finished, but the um, the language refresher was great, and I it was helpful to because it inspired me to keep keep going with the effort to learn languages because it's I don't find it easy I find it very very difficult actually, but um, but I uh, I want to keep going with it and that was really inspirational for that but also it was just great to read through the Bible together and to talk you know to talk through the. Uh, the scriptures together. And so that was fantastic. Um, And you've got some Hebrew stuff online, don't you?
1: So I do. um, I start, uh, OKL students frequently say, when I'm out in ministry full time, how can I keep Hebrew going? And uh, it really does not take very much, you know, five to 10 minutes a day and you won't lose any Hebrew. I started a YouTube channel uh, just really briefly, like, one to two verses a day, three-minute video, just explaining how they work and whatnot, hopefully reflecting on them devotionally. And I also started putting up some video, just short reflection videos, five minutes long. I did a series on Job in the time of the pandemic, and I'm doing a series on First Samuel. Now.
0: I, yeah, I've seen that, and they're, they're great. And I basically, how I do Hebrew now, because all I've, I have, I started by trying to go through these, um, where are they, can you see them? If I swivel enough, you might be able to see them just there. Those guys. Um, the interaction, oh,
1: right. The yeah, the red ones. Yeah. Practical yeah, that's one things are great.
0: Yeah. They are good. You know, and when I was when, when I was at Oak Hill, we were using Kelly and I just really struggled with Kelly. You know, like it just it the textbook was just so like um, aesthetically unfriendly. <laughs> just,
1: I, I, I I I learned Hebrew with Kelly and it is it has some strengths, but it's not user friendly. No, most no. intro Hebrew textbooks give just way too much information, I think
0: so. I, I had to, I thought, and I started out, and I still do try and do that as I, I go through the textbooks, I just read them through. Um, but actually, I found that you know, even that is quite difficult to sustain. Um, yes. so what I basically do is I, I, I watch um, the Daily Dose of Hebrew. Yeah. I don't know if you've, you've heard of that, and I, I watch I, your, I have, yeah. and I watch your. Your Hebrew things, and um, oh, and also that's that's not entirely true. I have recently started doing one-on-one lectures with with a, a Hebrew professor uh, a lecturer out in out in, in Liverpool, who's oh, sort of um, patient
1: with me. So, oh, wonderful! That's great. <laughs> Hebrew, he, 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 Hebrew. I, I constantly tell people Hebrew is a simpler lang- language than English. So if you can figure out how to speak English, you, you can figure Hebrew out. The problem is Hebrew is so obscure. Yeah. Even Gr- Greek is much more complicated than the Hebrew, but there's enough overlap between Hebrew and e- between Greek and English that yeah. helps. Uh, yeah. Hebrew, yeah. Hebrew is so obscure. So the way to overcome the obscurity is just through constant repetition. Yeah. And a- as you do, the obscurity will fall away, and you'll start to see that it's actually not very complicated, but yeah. it is really. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing, the thing that gets me. Me, I'm just gonna
1: move, I've got my laptop on my lap right now and the screen keeps jiggling, I'm just gonna move so that it doesn't, it's bothering me. I don't want to give anyone a whiplash if they're watching. Yeah, this. we get,
0: get a bit of motion sickness. There. That
1: should help,
0: okay. Oh, great, oh, looks good, you look great. Um, the, uh, so how did you get into, like, okay, so, cause I get that some people just have an affinity for languages, is that you? Do you have an affinity for languages?
1: Um, it, it was, I mean, I did Latin and Greek as an undergrad and it is sort of this, the, I mean, it's, I don't know the languages are easy for anyone, but it's the kind of thing It does come to me if I work at them. Uh, I did Latin and Greek and as an undergrad and majored in philosophy actually, and was without realizing it really rash. I, I came into college, a Cartesian rationalist without knowing what a Cartesian rationalist was. Okay. I can talk more about what that is if, if you want me to. Happy it's a superficially attractive worldview that actually makes no sense at all. And it's really hard to be a Christian with that worldview. Had um, it smashed a bit in a helpful, painful, but helpful way. Went to seminary, didn't really know what else I wanted to do. Passed out a first year Greek and did second year Greek, enjoyed it. It was helpful. I got it. I mean, I wrote my first exegetical paper on Colossians 2 and it kind of got it, made sense. I was taking first-year Hebrew, and it was so weird because it was like one of those Rembrandt paintings where everyone is standing around with turbans on their heads. Everyone, no one is reacting the way I expect. They're, they're, it's not just the language itself. It's the cultural language that the Old Testament is speaking that is just so different from mine. But the bizarre thing was throughout first-year Hebrew, the more I stuck with the Old Testament, the more I started, the more I got acclimated to the different culture.
0: yeah, And the more I started yep. to
1: think, oh, that's why Ruth says that, or that's why Abraham says that, and that's what that phrase means. And the more that started to happen, the more I started to read, and I just sort of got deeper and deeper and deeper, and pretty soon I realized I never wanted to get out. It was a little bit like one of those romantic comedies where the, the main girl that, the guy's going to fall in love with she's wearing glasses at the beginning. So he's like, Oh, ah, whatever. Then she takes <laughs> her glasses off. He's really beautiful. Yeah. It's like, Hebrew actually we knew all along she was really beautiful. You know, but... <laughs> right? Hebrew took her, yeah. took their glasses off. And I was like, wow, you, you are fascinating. Um, <laughs> and I just, I've never gotten over it That's, and I'm yeah. in my 14th year of teaching. And I think I'm starting to get a hang on what the Old Testament is about. It. it um.
0: Oh, I I apologize, Eric. It's saying my internet connection is Andre, unstable.
1: No worries at all. Just blame um, it on me.
0: The um. So, so was. So when did you become a Christian? Then
1: uh, I was thirteen years old. I grew up in a Christian home. I accepted Jesus into my heart like five or six. When I was thirteen, uh our family just moved to Chicago. I had moved to a new school. Nervous thirteen-year-old didn't know anyone. Um. A. a friend and a good friend that I had nothing to fear from asked me what religion my family was. And I said, we didn't have one, even though I knew it wasn't true. I couldn't even admit my family was Christian, you know, and that very night, uh, there's a baseball player who named Earl Hershiser who won the World Series for his team. And I saw him getting interviewed that very night. Uh, And he would sing in between innings to calm his nerves. The interview was asking what he was singing, and he he would sing the doxology to himself, and he sang it on the t v show in this utterly sort of unguarded vulnerability, so I felt pretty bad after seeing that a <laughs> bit of a contrast between the two and it was the first time you know I experienced the Holy Spirit's presence and asked the forgiveness of my sins and um mm-hmm. yeah, that was the normal way in actually. Sure.
0: What was it like growing up as a pastor's kid
1: um um I say this
0: because I'm a pastor and I have kids.
1: Yeah, yeah. Really, really wonderful, but I made it weirder than it needed to be. Yeah. Wonderful because my father, his father, my father grew up as a pastor's kid. His father told him repeatedly and explicitly he didn't have any particular expectations for him. He didn't have to grow up to be a pastor. He could do whatever he wanted with his life. The only expectation was from my grandfather to my father, do not be a mediocre Christian. Live 100% for the Lord. Whatever you do, unambiguously, you are living for God, trying to be a blessing to other people. Whatever it is you do with your life. Um, and that's, that's what I got from my father. That's what I've tried to say to my kids. Mm-hmm. I'm really happy with you, whatever you want to do with your life. Just don't be lukewarm for mm-hmm. the Lord. And that, that it's, it's really the sense that I am failing someone's expectations is a horrible, horrible feeling. Yeah. And for my father to say, I don't have particular expectations for you, except that was really wonderful. My own, um, my own legalistic tendencies and my own, you know, Isaiah 6 sort of incomprehensions before God's utter graciousness to me mm. meant I interpreted Christianity in a moralistic way. and I made it a lot more difficult than it needed to be. So if it was at all difficult to be a pastor's kid, it was of my own doing. My father didn't think it. My father handled that really well
0: yeah there that's are, that's that's good uh, that's good advice that's interesting yeah. there,
1: there are those weird conversations you get where you realize people think you're like special somehow because you're a pastor's kid that's weird you probably had the same uh mm-hmm. i never really knew what to do. was that true for you andre well
0: i don't know i don't know i think i actually think i mean the more <laughs> the more i think about my church the more i think about how I actually <laughs> how graciously they behave in lots of ways the uh mm. I don't. I don't feel like anyone in my church is putting any pressure on my kids
1: mm. at all. That's wonderful.
0: I. I think that. Uh, I don't know if that's their experience of it. I haven't. They're still a bit young. I think to feel the pressure of that. Right. My. My oldest is starting. Maybe starting to come into that age where he'll be more and more uh, self conscious about it. But I think. I think on the on the whole um yeah not so much actually it's really been i've really been um because it can happen not only with kids but also with wives pastors wives can Mm. also have a lot of pressure put on them to Mm. to fulfill certain expectations of what a pastor's wife should be and i haven't felt liz hasn't felt that so much um so glad so yeah but it can be a real problem it can be a real problem i think generally though in the I mean, this is a. I've never actually been to America, but this is just basically what I what I've gleaned from media. Okay, yeah. is I think that there might be a slightly stronger assumption that's made about pastors' kids becoming pastors themselves in the states than there is in the UK. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've, I mean, like I say, that's not grounded in any first-hand experience. That's just, that's just me looking at what I see on television and on the internet right. and saying, I think that may be the case, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Uh, like I say, my church has always surprised me in, in lots of ways as to like how graciously they respond to things like
1: this. Um, well, lots of good ways, right?
0: Lots of good ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was really like, it's a, it's a traditional church you know it's a conservative church and um i was really worried because you know i was we were running all sorts of guest events at the church and and in walked an openly gay couple um you know into into the church and i was like oh goodness what's you know what's gonna happen and they were just awesome you know the church is just awesome about it and i just you know really i i felt bad for not expecting them to behave that way you know (laughs)
1: You know, my, like, my 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 father talks about gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Yeah, how yeah. it's possible to have the right doctrine, but the relational atmosphere. Yeah, is very ungracious, and it sounds like your church has both, and that is a powerful, powerful, potent thing. And when yeah. a church has both, then if it's more conservative, you know, in non essentials, those the, the those conservative aspects can become really beautiful. Yeah, and dignifying, and not. um not make you feel constricted and claustrophobic you know
0: yeah i I think so i think our church had been to be fair i mean i'm i'm sort of late to the show i've only been there a couple of uh, well um six years but the um the pastors before me have been doing particularly the pastor before me had been Mm -hmm. doing a lot of work in in sort of in changing the culture loosening Mm -hmm. it up a bit you know making Mm -hmm. it more friendly and And so I've just continued along that trajectory, but um, Mm. yeah, no, I think you're right. I think, um, you know, you you can be kind of nasty traditional and you can be kind of loving, warm traditional, you know? Yeah. I
1: think, I I think there's something supernatural that's been happening in your church, Andre. That's a work of God because left to ourselves, Mm. we will either go a flaky kind of, superficial warmth that has no backbone yeah. and the offense of the cross is just muted or it's just absent, you know, or we'll have a lot of backbone, but we're, we're fair basically yeah. to, to have the doctrinal clarity and conviction together with welcoming sinners and tax collectors, right? That's that. We just don't do that. No, hmm. no human being ever stumbles into that on their own. That's no, a no, word no. of God. That's really wonderful.
0: Well, I think you're right. And I think that, you know, our, our church has enjoyed, even under the pastors who were, um, you know, perhaps a little bit more kind of stuffy traditional. Mm. Um, I, the, they still enjoyed good expository preaching and, mm. you know, faithful prayer ministry there. And so, you know, I kind of joined the church and thought, you know, this is a church where you genuinely see the fruit of love for each other and you genuinely see faith in Christ. And those are the two primary evidences of the spirit at work in, in people. And I thought to myself, "Goodness me, I could do a lot worse here." And like it <laughs> felt like suddenly I was taking this like, this this really precious thing into my hands and thinking, "Oh goodness, you know, or it'd be so easy to drop it from here." You know what I mean? Oh. Like but wow. but in some sense it just seems like that's just happened like that would yeah. you know it was because of the ministry over over the, over the years yeah. the churches, the god's been at work there and so yeah it just felt like that could be so, like I was just like oh god please let me let me not miss this up. it's going so, <laughs> it's going so well so far you know it would be very easy to trace it back to the point where it started to go downhill you
1: know? oh boy that's a wonderful attitude to have toward your own church well, well, yeah, it's
0: terrifying. But anyway, I'm, I'm sort of over it now. You know, yeah. I think um, having a plurality of elders, you know, as we do in our, in, in our church, is, is a massive relief. I mean, I don't know how some of these Anglican guys that are, you know, because I got good Anglican friends even here, but they just don't, don't. have the same kind of team around them. Yeah, the, wow. that I have, you know, and the shared responsibility where I can say, listen, you know, it's not just me; it's the whole eldership. Yeah. So yeah. I have I have certain things that I'm primarily responsible for, like teaching and preaching. But, yeah. um, but the whole eldership, you know, um, leads, governs, serves the church. So, yeah. um, yeah, I find I found that to be a, a massive kind of relief. Actually, yeah. that's kind of tricking me onto another thing. You're you're an Anglican. Have you always been an Anglican?
1: No, I'm a late, I'm a latecomer. Latecomer <laughs> late to Anglicanism. And, now, and, yeah, go on. Sorry. Well, mo- mostly just for some weird circumstantial reasons. I grew up Presbyterian, and doctrine-wise, I'm like ninety-eight percent there. I probably couldn't make it as a Presbyterian, but not because of any massive differences in doctrine.
0: Go on, go on. T- tell us, tell us, tell us. Because I used to be Presbyterian
1: too, so this is a useful right. You know, the, I don't think the regulative principle is crazy by any means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, for reasons, good or bad, maybe my reasons aren't good. I just, I don't find myself compelled to take that position. When I read Hooker on bishops, yep. and, and he will say, yes, the word overseer in the New Testament does not mean what a bishop is today. In the New mm-hmm. Testament, yes. That didn't start till the 2nd century. But it's not a crazy way to, I mean, it's practical, yeah. and it's yeah. nice to have a pastor to pastors and so on. Mm-hmm. So that's okay. We can organize the church that way. I just find myself going, yeah, makes sense. That's fine. That that's. There are just key, ecclesiologically, there are things Hooker will say that aren't very Presbyterian that I, I jive. Um, but it's not because I look at a Presbyterian form of government, and I think, oh, that is just such a terrible that's way to right. yeah. I, I I get the appeal. I understand that.
0: I did struggle, uh, um, you know, because they follow the kind of Westminster rules of debate, Um, you know, so you address the moderator, you know, and, and everything is so formal like that. And I, I really struggled with that. It just seemed so like, yeah, Oh, it was just not conducive to uh, to like the kind of tone of, Hey brothers, let's consider how we may serve the people of God together kind of thing. It was just, it felt like, and, and the presbytery meetings were just insane like this. And and I realized that that is, you know, the problem is always the people, not the system itself, but I don't think the system helped, you know, like it just, I
1: struggled with it. i met Presbyterians who I thought were so godly, joyful men that I thought, man, sign me up. This, hmm. I, this is beautiful. I want to be a part of this. But I yeah. found cert- that there's a certain sort of mindset that goes along with conservative English speaking Presbyterianism, which is not, bad hmm. in in god's hands it can be a beautiful powerful thing but it's not really one i have mm-hmm. and there's certain sort of church cultures that accumulate and accrue mm-hmm. in certain denominations that aren't bad hmm. i re i would never it just seems like galatianism all over again to say a church can only have one kind of culture you know what i mean
0: yeah but yeah, yeah
1: i just found presbytery meetings like i i just there's no atmosphere in the room just so thought what am i horrible. what am i doing here? now
0: it's just really I, hard to maintain as that an kind anglican, of
1: anglican it's yeah. especially ironic for me to be casting aspersions upon another as an Anglican, i mean are you kidding me <laughs> we can't even figure <laughs> out which direction is up but just in terms of where i fit yeah, yeah i just yeah. just 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 narrowly miss the boat on the okay yeah yeah i am um, I. Uh, i assume uh, your experience was i assume your experience was similar andre
0: yeah, it was. I mean, I look. I I did um, a two year apprenticeship at St Helens Bishopsgate, you know, which is obviously a Church of England church in the UK, and uh, very, very thankful for it. And there, they obviously encouraged all of the apprentices to consider going into Anglican ministry. Um, now, I'm, you know, I'm a. I think I, I, I was from a Presbyterian background, you know, like I said, in, in well, it kind of transitioned. I was charismatic initially, and then I went Presbyterian. And then anyway, it carried on like that. And um, I, I pulled out of the Presbyterian system, not ultimately for those reasons, but more because actually it, it was just getting to the point where I felt like being Presbyterian in South Africa was a hindrance to gospel ministry rather than a, wow. a help to it largely for the same reasons why i would say no to church of england i don't right. actually object to anglicanism i just right. object to the anglicanism i see before me even at some level you know i find this experience like everywhere everywhere i go um you know i like even when i consider catholicism i find the idea of a magisterium like a wonderful, wonderfully reassuring idea. The problem is that I just couldn't embrace the magisterium that's on offer. That's I think that's that's the problem. But to say that there was somebody out there who could just divinely tell me what to believe. Like I just think, hey, man, I'm I'm naturally lazy. Like that would be that would, <laughs> that, that would be a wonderful way to short circuit the agony and the agonising over like things, you know, that, that, you know, like working hard on the doctrine of justification when I could just say, do you know what he says, you know, and like, that would just be a lot simpler to me. And I love the idea of that. And so I find it very, very appealing, but I just cannot embrace it.
1: The horrible paradox about Anglicanism is that on paper, it's, I mean, if you read the book of common prayer, it's amazing. It's awesome.
0: I love it, yeah.
1: and and if you read Hooker and other great, Ang- and George Whitfield and others, I mean they're amazing. But you look at what it actually—I mean, the more I started to read in Anglican church history, the Church of England has—I mean, I love the Church of England so much, and I admire it so much. I think it's one of the great churches in Christendom. But it's basically never not been in trouble since it started, um, <laughs> and that's continued to this day. Uh, so you know, I I always I. I don't I don't want to be ashamed of my church cuz I don't believe Jesus. Jesus really loves his bride even when we're faithless. But I always wince a bit when I say I'm Anglican cuz I don't want Yeah. in this weird way, I don't quite know how to resolve saying I'm Anglican means I'm opposed to a lot of what's going on in Anglicanism right now. Yeah. And uh, I don't really know how to express that, but that's the weird position I find myself in.
0: But to be honest, I feel the same when I use the word evangelical. Like I sometimes... Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. Okay. So, well, I mean, uh, so uh, a while ago I had the odd experience of being in a room of of clergy okay and the only one in the room i could relate to was the roman catholic priest yeah the evangelicals the anglicans the methodists they were off the wall crazy and i don't just mean personality was i mean i mean doctrinally the anglican described herself as a post-christian neo-buddhist
1: right you know and I'm just thinking Andre, once you become Anglican, you can believe anything. <laughs> you can believe it. It doesn't matter. It yeah. doesn't matter. And actually, if you really believed what Anglicans always believe, that would not be true. But there's just there's a weird incoherence.
0: You can't, you can't like sometimes you get you get blocked from going into the system. I, I've got you know, I've got friends who got battered out of the uh, out of ordination because they act they were actual Anglicans. That's <laughs> right. Kind of,
1: the, 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 I, Andre, I don't want to interrupt you. I want to hear more about this from you. But the complication of the human heart and our idolatrous hearts yeah. means that all the good things God gives us, like denominations and meetings and synods and Presbyterian church culture and so on, all of which could be really beautiful, good, life-giving things, we, we find ways to make them uh, destructive things and things that choke the life out of. And it doesn't need to be that way. And then, and then we have these bizarre experiences. When I, uh, when I was in seminary, I was working as, as a security guard. And most of the security guards there were other seminary students. The company went through a shift where a lot of us go and they hired other people. I had an easier time relating to the non-Christian security guards than I did the seminary. I found them easier to talk to, even though they weren't Christians. And you think I had more in common with the other Christian seminaries? Yeah. It's, that's the weird paradox of the idolatrous human But I interrupted you. I apologize. Please no, please. I, think
0: that, well, I think that's it in a nutshell. So, you know, it was that experience that first made me think, hang on a second. There were other evangelicals in the room, okay. but actually their whole view of uh, the gospel of ministry of Christianity was just, if I'm honest, it was further away from me in lots of ways than the Roman Catholic was. Yeah, and yeah. You, know, you have to understand, like our church has taken a pretty strong stance. We aren't part of churches together because of um, its links with Roman Catholicism, as well as liberal Protestantism and the Quakers yeah. and everything like that. So it's not just them, but yeah, um, yeah. You know, we have a strong policy, as as all FIEC churches do, about we will only have true gospel unity. You know, when we agree on the gospel. So, yeah. Um, we're not going to pretend to have unity when we have, don't have any agreement on the gospel. And I'm, I'm not backtracking from that at all, but this really uh, made me realize that, hang on a second, that, that, that same hesitancy to go into partnership with a liberal Protestant or with a Roman Catholic also now applies to evangelicals, to people who call themselves evangelical because of things like the prosperity gospel, because a lot of evangelicals see themselves as political agents uh you know rather than ecclesial agents um a lot of evangelicals are more concerned with um or or just like so overly pietistic that um it makes me as a as a kind of confessionalist feel very very uncomfortable you know and and you have that thing so i listen to the white horse in podcast all the time where they will take microphones into evangelicals pastors conferences and ask them basic questions about the gospel, and they just have no idea. You know, yeah. we interviewed a guy for a youth pastor. I mean, I could go on and on with illustrations of this. We interviewed someone for a youth pastor position, um, and they were all coming from evangelical uh, seminaries—not Oak Hill, has to be said—but even other, you know, evangelical seminaries. Their idea of what the gospel was um, was that God thinks you're awesome. That's the gospel. Right. Yeah. Now. Like, I, I guess with enough caveats, you could kind of make that way, <laughs>
1: but, but it's not, just,
0: I would not say well, it was I'm a helpful them. way. <laughs> you
1: know? I, I, I agree with this. I think it's helpful and appropriate when, it, when some part of Christendom is, clear, is unclear about justification by faith. It's helpful and appropriate to take a strong, strong doctrinal stance and say, there's a division here. At the same time, like you, I've had those bizarre experiences of talking to Roman Catholics. Who I app and, and people have died to make the dividing line between Catholicism and Protestantism unambiguously clear, and that means a lot to me. And I'm not going to fudge that line. I don't. I don't want to squander the inheritance that the reformers have given. On the other hand, I've met Roman Catholics who, not doctrinally but intuitively, had a better sense of grace than, than some have. Evangelicals I met, and, and like you say, now okay, I, I'm born American, lived in Canada for 10 years, spent many years in Great Britain. If I were in America, I'd have a hard time calling myself an evangelical. I'd, I'd have to find someone, I, I don't know if I wouldn't, but I, I'd have to really start qualifying it because the Republican Party and all that nonsense. It's, I find it's a lot less true in Canada and Great Britain. Um, it's less complicated, basically. There, there, there's more clarity about, about what the church is about. I, I I guess I don't want to surrender the the denominational doctrinal identity, and yet I, I I'm with you. That's no safety in and of itself. We're yeah. I don't know, Andre. I mean, I when I get hit with the gospel again, it's so easy for me to forget it. <laughs> when I I was I was reading in my devotion, reading, epistle of James, and that powerful passage in chapter four about weep and wail double-hearted people and, and, and you know let your joy be turned to gloom and then he, there's that, that little phrase but he gives more grace mm. how many times have i read that passage i've never seen it before mm. in the midst of that open hypocrisy god gives not it's not just he gives grace he gives more grace mm. i just sort of stopped and was quiet for a couple of, i was like wow mm. Why would that hit me so strongly, except I need to be rebaptized in the gospel I already believe over and over and over again? So in the same way that first Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that's come upon you. That's talking about external persecution. But the, the utter lack of ignorance of the gospel, and that we don't know we're ignorant <laughs> among mm-hmm. evangelicals, we shouldn't be surprised at that problem. That's my problem too. And if you have, if you're within an evangelical denomination that has the doctrinal structure, I'd much rather have that there than be trying to talk about grace in a Roman Catholic structure where, I mean, whatever else you want to say about Catholicism, whatever else, I mean, I've been to Catholic services before. I understand why someone would be Roman Catholic, Mm -hmm. and I Mm -hmm. understand why the Reformation happened, because grace is not absent there, but it is obscured. The absolute radical sort of You are forgiven purely on the merits of Jesus Christ. Yeah, irrespective, it's not there. So
0: it's something that's been frightening me about this uh, as well. Again, and it's just you know I guess it's healthy. It's healthy to to kind of you know put things into perspective from time to time. But you know, so one of the ways I've started to kind of describe myself to people is I, I tell them I'm a reformed Catholic. You know which I guess would be truer if you were Anglican than if you were a Baptist, but, but it does. I mean, like, I, I just, you know, I'm not willing to, um, uh, you know, I, I'm not willing to let go of, of, uh, you know, every tradition just cause Roman Catholics did it, you know, at some point or, or, um, or to not read the church fathers because they hadn't discovered, you know, what it meant to be a Baptist yet. You know, <laughs> now, Andre,
1: you know I, you're not the first person I've heard to describe themselves that way, but you know if that becomes a denomination, you get a journal published and it gains some momentum, <laughs> yeah. then more people will start to see that and say, Well, I'm not a reformed Catholic, because more weirdos will show up. That's and right. you, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is the weird paradox no about church of it. life.
0: But I've been starting to get proper freaked out though at um, at some of the the works coming out of Orthodox Presbyterians, Orthodox Reformed um, institutions and pastors yep. that sound to me like just like Roman Catholicism. And then I've also been speaking to, or um, not not personally, but been interacting, you know, listening to the. Uh, I did a bit of a deep dive into Catholicism um, over the last couple of years, just because, you know, the, more, the, the longer we take the stand on churches together, the more pressure I'm under. And I thought I actually, I need to understand the other point of view. So that I actually know what I'm talking about. Right. So that, that's what, um, and I kind of had an idea, but I'd always read about Roman Catholicism from from Protestants. You know what I mean? So mm. I wanted to read Roman Catholicism from Roman Catholics. So I've mm. been listening to Roman Catholic apologists and I've been reading Roman Catholic blogs and listening to Roman Catholic lecture series and, and all this. Guy, and I've learned a hangover a lot from it. Uh, but the one thing that has been slightly disorienting is I've also been reading um, guys like Tom Wright. Um, who obviously with the new perspective on Paul, this is, there's a lot of questions that come out of that, and I'm not a huge fan. I think it does basically sound like Roman Catholicism, mm-hmm. uh, but also closer to home from like Westminster, Philadelphia, there've also been guys writing out of those sorts of networks that have really unnerved me with the level of, or, or the emphasis they put on works. Um, in fact, it's not just Westminster, but have you ever read Piper on, on Justification? Um, on, on, on final justification,
1: specific. Yeah, there may, there may be some eccentricities there, possibly. One of the reasons I'm not Roman Catholic yeah. is, I, I, Andre, may, maybe you don't agree, I don't know, but my sense is my struggle to find a church I'm really comfortable in. My sense is that the, the extent to which I try to make my home in the church and not in Jesus Christ yeah. <laughs> yeah. is I'm going to be unsettled and constantly sort of thrown around on different ways and feel constantly homeless. Yeah. The church is the most bizarre paradoxical institution you can imagine, because without God's constant help and a constant rebaptizing in the gospel, we turn into our opposite. Mm. We turn into the opposite of what we're supposed to be and and I, I you know I, Andre I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I, I, I guess I've, I've found that if I just think, well okay I'll I'll, I'll I'll become Anglican or something like that. yeah yeah. Similar sorts of problems follow me everywhere. The the church is a kind of eternal present tense where on Sunday morning, Jesus Christ is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit works, God's word is opened, worship happens, fellowship happens, and the miracle happens. And the life of Jesus Christ and the body of Jesus Christ actually happens. And then I sort of lose it, and I need to somehow get back to it again. You know what I mean? And to whatever extent the institutions can remain subservient to that, they're good. Yeah. It's just so easy for them to start to exist for their own sake and things just get Yeah. Um and there are presbyterian versions of that and baptist versions and roman catholic versions and anglican yeah. versions. And I guess I'm just I'm not willing to surrender on the value of of reform of evangelical identity that comes out of the reformation, the great awakening, fundamentalist modernist debates. I'm in that stream and I'm in that tradition. I want to read the church fathers too and I have tried to do that. Yeah. And yet that's my heritage and it's a good one, but it's no safe. It's no refuge in and of itself. And it's so vulnerable. And uh, what's the word for breakable, fraggable, fracturable. It's just, it's so easy for it to turn into its opposite and it's constantly doing so unless God saves us. I don't know. I mean, this is where the Bible is really helpful. Mm -hmm. The Bible is one of the great anti-religious texts of all time. I wish more atheists would read if you want a sustained critique of religion, the Bible is the first place to go. Yeah, yeah. If everything we're talking about and the way God's people take the means of grace, whether under the old covenant or the new covenant, and we twist them around and they become blocks of God, we're really good at doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm really good at doing that. And if I get off and found my own, own denomination, I'll just perpetuate the same problem.
0: Yeah, same problem, exactly. And I feel like, you know, um, yeah, I, I feel like that has been the problem, especially with, uh, you know, uh, nonconformist evangelicals is just constantly separating and pulling away and pulling away and pulling away, mm-hmm. which leads to just like this massive fracturing. But at the same time, like you said, the real value of any kind of church is actually what happens at a local church on a Sunday morning, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in one sense, actually, I feel like creating denomination denominational structures Though there's always pros and cons. Mm. Yeah. That's not where the value is found. So being mm. an independent local church um, is, is, is really the, it's, it's what happens at, at the local church level that that brings mm. value and meaning not what happens at a den- denominational level. But at the same time, I think the problem with being um, in a kind of independent local church setting is that you do just feel very cut off and not, mm not it's not like um you cut off you're cut off relationally mm. because I have plenty of other um you know f i e c buddies and and whatever that's not the issue the yeah. the issue is that you're cut off from a sense of the family tree i think mm. if mm. that makes sense like we like you know i think i don't know why what this is I've always felt like a bit of a nomad you know in in some ways, South African living abroad. You know, but even in South Africa, I didn't really feel like I was at home there. So, I, you know, I always felt like like a bit of a nomad. And church-wise, I guess I found myself sort of the strong impulse, sort of growing and growing, to try and find a kind of identity. You know, a tr- a, a place within the Christian family tree. And you know, kind of the Reformed Baptist part of the family tree is just you know so far from removed from the original from the original trunks that it's sometimes a bit unsettling. You know. But then again, you, if you look at it from the perspective of what's happening at a local church level, then there's quite a lot of unity between, you know, your evangelical Anglican church and your evangelical Baptist church. but, um, but I think, I think, I guess, you know, sort of bring it full circle. The word evangelical does need to be qualified somehow, you know? So, you know, you could talk about being a liberal evangelical and that just all I hear then is liberal. <laughs> you know, or you could talk about being a reformed evangelical. And what I hear then is reformed, you know, and I, and I think, so you you kind of wonder what evangelicals adding at this point. And then you, and then you talk to Lutherans and they're like, yeah, we're evangelical. You're not. And and I'm like, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? Of course we're evangelical. And you're like, well, you know, what does it mean to be evangelical? So I'm like, well, inspiration of the scriptures, you know, and you know, need for personal, faith and conversion and and all that. And he's like, well, that's not what it means to be an evangelical. An evangelical is someone who believes the evangel. Yeah. So talk to me about your evangel and I'll talk to you about being an evangelical. And I'm like, wonderful. Then you look at Lutherans and you think, man, they believe in baptismal regeneration. (laughs) (laughs) So like, what is going on here? You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I I was in a martial arts club and and stick fighting was part of the curriculum and i was told when you're holding your stick you've got to hold it like you're holding a bird hold it too loosely it's going to fall out of your hand you grip it your, your arm is going to get really tired you can't do it you have to hold it loosely and actually that's the best way to hold on to it i'm not willing to i i just don't believe people when they say evangelical identity is incoherent or bad in itself i think the tradition coming out of historic church Reformation, Great Awakening, Fundamentalist, Modern, Modernist debate, Billy Graham, and so on. I think that's a coherent tradition. but I think I really got to hold it lightly. And it is so easy for it to be corrupted. I think it makes sense. It's it's where I'm at, mm-hmm. and I think it's a beautiful expression of the evangelical. I think it's the best one out there. But boy, is it easy to turn into something ugly, and we see that happening in my own country oh, in all amazing. kinds of ways. So it just it had needs to be held really ugly. But and you know, but if if I want to start. Qualifying myself, whatever term I want to use to describe myself, a hundred years from now, people will saying will be saying, "Well, I'm not that." If I want to say I'm a gospel Christian, which I've heard some Christians I really admire, starting you, hundred years from now, they're going to be saying, "I'm not a gospel Christian. I'm this." You know, yeah. it's it's yeah. they're they're just I don't know. I I've, I've been married to the same woman since 2001. We've lived in like five or six different houses. It keeps changing, but the same, the the spouse is the same. You know what I mean? That doesn't yeah. I, sometimes in some church cultures, there's an unhelpful intensity in the focus on the institution, the tradition, the theological particulars, all of which are really important. But some of the Presbyterian guys, there is such a focus on that. It just goes in, I don't know, it just goes in weird directions.
0: I agree. And I think, look, I mean, I think the way that you describe evangelicalism, which goes all the way back to the Reformation, I think even that is helpful. Um, in the sense that not everyone who dis- defines evangelicalism does that, and really, I think honestly, we have to do that if we're going to talk about evangelicalism. That's its roots, you know.
1: And if you read Luther and Calvin and Hooker, they're very plugged into the church fathers. Yeah, totally. Calvin especially yeah. quotes them all the time. All the time. Yeah. The, the, the Reformation is an attack on late medieval tradition. <laughs> it's I I'd be okay with saying it's not even really attack on Catholicism in the most general sense. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. an attempt to get back to the early church and regain something that the late medieval church lost. Yeah. It's not a rejection of the church. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. way I read Calvin, that's, that's seems to me what he's doing. What yeah.
0: He's doing yeah. No, I, I agree hundred percent. And I think that's why I'm, you know, I think we need to, we need to trace our, our history all the way back. Yeah. You know?
1: But, 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 you know, Andre, I mean, the thing that attracts me about Anglicanism in, is that deeper sense of rootedness, more of a liturgy that yeah. takes account of the goodness of embodied existence, mm-hmm. that the fact that God gave me a body is not an accident or a bad thing or impediment to be overcome. It's the sphere in which I exist, you know, mm. um, incarnation, incarnation, <laughs> and, and, and this sense of I don't know. When I look at Anglican literature, it's Protestant. The, the BCP yeah. is as Protestant as it can be, but there also, I think there is this sense of, let, let's keep the ancient, let's keep hearing the ancient voices as well, which I find really sort of nourishing. That feeling of, okay, I'm at home here. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm defining Anglicanism now in the best and most ideal sense. Yeah. So <laughs> the amount of yeah. Anglicans who would actually qualify, according to my definition, is very, very small. Well, I mean, yeah, I think
0: that's it. And I, but I, to be honest, you know, like I'm a confessionalist, right? So I, I, I don't believe that every Christian reads the Bible and has the right to make it up. You've got to read the Bible in the light of church history, in the light of systematic theology, which basically means, ultimately, you either adopt a confession of faith or you create your own one you know, ultimately that's, that's how people will read the Bible. You either read it in the light of a Westminster or a 1689 Baptist confession, or you make up your own confession. And I just can't Every, abide the.
1: It, I it, can't abide the making your systemat- own. Everyone has a systematic theology. Yeah. Everyone does. Even the Christians who say, I don't have a systemic the- systematic theology. I just read the Bible. Everyone, it, anytime a Christian says that, I just say, who is Jesus? And they say, God's <laughs> son. And I say, what does it mean for God to have a son? Yeah. And they say, the eternal unity of the God, and the eternal unity of the divine nature, God generates His own image, being in full nature God, but uh different only in that there is generator and generate. I mean, they don't give that answer. I'm being funny when I say that. Yeah, yeah. And I say you're doing systematic theology right now, and that affects exactly. how you read Genesis one to Revelation yeah. twenty-two. So.
0: Yeah, and you got yeah, that Nicene Creed. No, no. <laughs> so, so it's like, it's like. Um, yeah, but the problem, at the same time, the problem I have is that there are very few confessions of faith that I can agree wholeheartedly to, 100%. So I do end up making my own one. You know, like, I, I'm not a total subscription, subscriptionist, so my, my yeah. creed of, of uh, the creed I'm most aligned with is the 1689 uh, Baptist Confession, but it's not by any means my only, the only statement of faith I align with. I love the Heidelberg. Uh, you know, I don't mind the 39 articles. There's a couple of bits, particularly when it's like gets the queen involved and stuff that I, I start to get a little bit like, what?
1: You, what anarchist? <laughs> <Yeah>. you anarchist.
0: <laughs> yeah, no. I just got like, I've sworn allegiance to the queen because yeah. I became a British citizen. I'm okay to do that as a British citizen. Yeah. But somehow, and I guess this is the whole two kingdoms thing, you know when i'm submitting to a kind of secular ruler as the head over an ecclesial body i don't i don't like it you know i'm just like no i don't want it and maybe um yeah and there's all sorts of reasons for that but but the the thing that sort of does uh and again i i guess this is this is why it comes back to you know i like the idea of a magisterium where you could just defer to them you know defer to the powers that be uh but the reality is you you know it's There is no magisterium that I think can be trusted with that sort of power. And it's blatantly obvious, you know.
1: So, So I I, I read a quote from a science fiction author where where he said once, sure, I believe in utopia, but who are you ever going to put there? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It would have to be empty, right? Yeah. A church with no people in it would be perfect and flawless. Mm. But, you know, it wouldn't be a church.
0: And... I guess, you know, and I guess that's, that's it. So, you know, it's similar to, you know, what church tradition you are part of, you're accepting something that is always going to be prone to corruption, isn't perfect, never going to be perfect. And um, you have to kind of take it warts and all. And in some sense that's true of confessions as well. You know, there are parts of every statement of faith uh, usually it's the pope as the antichrist but that gets you know is the first hurdle but then there's other stuff like you know i've got a slightly different view uh to on the sabbath than what you find in the westminster in the 1689 actually much more like the heidelberg but um uh and you know on the creation thing as well i've got some you know different views there so the the yeah there are areas where i just have to say look i can't in good conscience go along with that but nevertheless this is my tradition you know i i you know and I guess with churches as well, you've got to see that, uh, you know, you've got to look for where the where the, the value is. And, and like you say, the New Testament always points the value or directs us to the value that is Christ himself, that we find through the preaching of the word, through the administering of the sacraments, through the gathering of the local church. And you know, that's where we find that value. And actually, if you just stay focused on that, all these bigger questions about what denomination I should belong to and all that and, like they do, kind of fade away a little bit. They fade to black a bit, you know. Um, yeah. Now, Eric, I realize that we're we're just about out of time, but I just, I just, will you give me a few minutes for zombies?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, is it because I look like one? <laughs> the no. older I get, the more I feel I resemble one.
0: No, do you know who you do look like? Though, have you uh, ever played Left for Dead?
1: Left for Dead? No, uh, Left. Uh, is that the cowboy one?
0: No, it's not. A, not a cowboy one. It's a zombie. Is that, one. is that
1: the zombie one where the guy's trying to protect the girl?
0: Oh no, no, no! That's no, that's else. Last of Us. That's Last it. of
1: Us. Yeah, Left for Dead. This Ugh, is a team a one second, where you I'll play
0: call. as as four people and you've got to okay. basically make it from one s- safe room to another until you okay. get evacuated.
1: Oh, okay. And there's see, four I'm th- a dark, I, I'm a Dark Souls guy through and through, so. <laughs> Okay. That kind of dominates the horizon.
0: Never played it. I, I I um I got I got the Witcher on like a discount on the PlayStation source. I've been I've been having a go at that recently. But the right. the um no the you are, uh, you are
1: missing out if you've not played Dark Souls.
0: I, I haven't played. It. Okay, I'll check it out next time. Okay. It, next time it's on like a ninety percent offer or something else. Okay, yeah, yeah That's anytime yeah. I buy I buy games when they're just sure. trying to get rid of them. But the For um. Sure. Uh, uh the the, anyway there's four characters and one of the characters is uh, a kind of like old dude with a beard and you're not old but you have a beard so
1: (laughs) well that's flattering comparison i'll take it that's fine thank you andre
0: he's very cool he's a hardcore dude you need to play it you need to play left for that but anyway you've written a zombie novel yeah and um i've I've ordered it, but sadly, it, it hasn't arrived yet. And then, after I bought it, I realized that I'd already bought it on Kindle. Oh, <laughs> Oops. anyway, so now I've got the Kindle version and I've got the paperback. So, okay, <laughs> um, but still haven't read it. And so, um, just uh, so I like the zombie genre, but just tell me a little bit about, like, how is it? How is it that a, uh, you know, what is it about the zombie genre? You know, why did well, you write clearly, a zombie it- novel?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Apparently I have this deep subconscious desire to torpedo my reputation. I mean, I could have written a book on like marriage and gender issues because that's really hot right now, but no, I wrote about that. I don't, I don't know what it is, Andre. Like the, I'm just, I'm drawn to the most sort of arcane, irrelevant issues. Like I have really lost sleep over Leviathan in the book, Joe. Like I get irritable reader syndrome. Who else cares about that? You think there are any conferences about Leviathan? No, there aren't. But anyway, that's what I care about. There, there are a number of things fed into this. First, I I, I fell in love with the Old Testament, and started studying it, and started noticing some of the similarities between the Old Testament and the and ancient Middle Eastern culture. I found this really fascinating because there's so much in the Old Testament that I I am. I, I am never more convinced than ever after studying the Old Testament for uh, going on two decades now that that is not just a human document. There is stuff in there that no human being would ever come up with. Uh, the mere fact you can't have an idol statue, that is revolutionary. The ancient Middle East was around for about 3,000 years. Sophisticated cultures, no one, it never occurred to anyone you couldn't make an idol statue for the guy. But there are a lot of similarities, not just linguistically, but in the cultural language. For all that the Bible rails against Baalism, and for all that we need to hear that, and we need to be alert to the Baals in our own culture, the Psalms will talk about Yahweh riding his chariot through the heavens and thundering in the heavens, which is what Baal does. So I think the Old Testament is relating to its environment in two ways. It's saying, first of all, some of the ways you think about God are just either stupid or wrong, and you need to repent. Secondly, it's looking at ancient Near Eastern pagans and saying, some of your ideas about God are okay. It's just you're going to the wrong person. And the real God is actually happy to give you what you want. You just can't go to Baal for them. I get the sense in the Old Testament, God is happy to make it rain. That's not a bad thing to want. But don't ask Baal for it because you won't get it. That's really interesting found myself watching zombie movies and liking them, especially the. Cl- I'm a classicist when it comes to zombie. It's George it's like Romero, like, Romero yeah. you know? yeah. <laughs> For two reasons. First of all, I think yeah. there are two impulses in zombie movies. For the the first is it's an exploration of if society fell apart, how would human beings act? Yeah. Okay. And in zombie movies, the answer is basically we would behave very badly. Theologically, yeah. zombie movies have a low anthropology. Take away yeah. the constraints of society, and we are animals. Yeah. We're sinners, basically. Yeah. That's very interesting that a non-Christian would say. Secondly, frequently in zombie movies, the boundary line between survivor and monster will become increasingly thin and difficult to distinguish. You'll get the survivors acting in increasingly mindless, rapacious, zombie-like ways, and the zombies sometimes acting in oddly human ways. So my favorite zombie movie, and I'm not recommending people see this movie, it's kind of horrifying, but Dawn of the Dead, 1979, the last scene is a bunch of zombies staggering around a shopping mall. Mm-hmm. with this canned elevator music playing, that is brilliant. That we're all zombies in this consumer culture, that's brilliant. That really got me thinking about how Paul says we're dead in our sins, mm. in our transgressions. Yeah. And I, I, I read at, at that time, a book by a Roman Catholic author actually uh, about the Frankenstein story and other horror uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. books and movies. And his basic perspective was, the horror genre is an attempt to confess sin and to exercise sin and get the evil out of us that will always fail because it's not Christian. It's not repentance, mm-hmm. you know? That got me really thinking. I wonder to the extent zombie movies, they are, are an attempt to recognize something about ourselves that we cannot bear to admit. It's an attempt half-consciously to identify, we identify with the monster and we say, I, am, I'm, I walk around, and I eat and I'm a convincing approximation of a human being, but inside I am dead and I consume and I consume and I consume and I am still unfilled. I'm the zombie. And at one level we're ha- in zombie movies, we're half consciously asking, can I survive my own zombie nature? Hmm. And for most zombie movies, the answer is no, you can't. They end with the zombies overwhelming the survivors. And that's an honest answer. So when I watch a zombie movie, I feel like a non-Christian friend is saying to me, you know what, Eric, I walk around and I talk, but inside I am dead, and I just mm-hmm. eat and eat, I consume, and, co- and I consume the people around me, too, and I'm never satisfied, and if a non-Christian friend said that to me, I, right away, I would have said, let's have coffee, my treat, and I'm bringing my Bible, so in the same way that the Old Testament exploits the cultural language of its pagan idolatrous setting, the Old Testament just, it rejects some stuff, obviously, but it hijacks other stuff and uses it to talk about the real God. Mm. Um, I wanna do the same thing with my own pagan idolatrous setting. So I wrote a zombie novel that is a novel, it's not a sermon, but toward the end of the book, one of the characters who is not a human being anymore says to the main characters, will you lay aside this life of living death for true death and for true life? And that's about the clearest I can say the gospel within the framework of yeah, a fictional be, yeah. device and not a sermon. So it's me trying, it's me trying to hijack elements from my own culture. It's mostly failed. No one has read it, but uh, it's out there. So it's, well,
0: incredible. people are going to read it now. So it's called <laughs> dead petals,
1: isn't it? So I originally wanted to title it over the bent world brooding. Right. After a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins, absolutely my favorite poet, which I thought would be very sinister and and cool sounding. But then when people got the original reference, they would see, it's a poem about the Holy Spirit brooding with warm breast and bright wings over the bent world. Um, so I hope would—I hoped it would register two different levels, but my publisher said, we want this to sell actually. And my, my zombies, if I can green a little bit, my zombies are kind of cool. They start to transform Ooh. and they keep changing in four or five ways. And spoiler alert, skip this if you don't want spoilers. In the first ah. chapter, in the first chapter, they their faces start to open up in these tentacles, and they they and they they start act, behaving in some oddly weird like ways and talking about their father, whoever that might be. Um, and the, the the survivors start to associate them with flowers opening up before the sun uh... and with like, and, and other things. So the publisher said, "How about dead petals?" And I I wasn't crazy about that, but I said, "Fine,
0: oh. cool." All right. Yeah. No, I like it. This is an intriguing. I've never heard a, a, a kind of flower thing in the title of a zombie before. So I think that, that gives it a unique angle.
1: There are, there are huge, when I look at the way the Old Testament interacts with its pagan idolatrous environment, I am shocked by the radicalness of the way it pushes back yeah. and the extent to which it just takes stuff over. Mm. My sense is that the church in the 21st century, 21st century Western church, we could be more radical in the way we hijack stuff. Yeah. And we need to be more radical in what we reject.
0: Mm.
1: We, we need to more clearly and defiantly reject the idols around us. And we also want to say, listen, if you're turning to our current incarnation of the Second Revolution for personal fulfillment, personal fulfillment is not a bad thing. There's mm-hmm. a real God who would love to give that to you, but you've got to die to yourself and take up your cross to get it. I think we could be clearer in saying that. I think especially in the horror genre, there are huge resources to talk about the gospel because action genres, action movies, they tend to be more optimistic and have not so much of a low anthropology that mm-hmm. we can save ourselves so we have mm-hmm. a hero, you know, although there are still some interesting Christ figures yeah. in action movies. The horror genre is the one, I mean, so much, so many horror movies, I just don't watch because they're just disgusting, but, you know, I know that. But it's the one genre most willing to say evil is a real thing. We cannot defeat it on our own. Yeah. And, and there are bigger powers out there that are bigger than human beings that we can't resist. And that's, that's true. Yeah. Even if it's not always understood very well. Mm. Even, and however much sin there is in the horror genre, that's true. And that's a great place to start a conversation with an audience. So for anyone listening, if you've got friends who like zombies, give them the book. It may be.
0: Yeah, cool. That's great. So um, I think two things to, to go away and check and check it out is the, the book. Get it. Yeah, It's on Kindle. It's definitely on Kindle. I didn't if you know. Go on Amazon.
1: It's on Kindle and you can get a paperback version. You can get a paperback version, so that's dead pedals. But also,
0: there's the if you're interested in keeping a Hebrew up to date, there's also your YouTube channel, and it's it, it's just your, it's Eric Ortland. If they search for Eric Ortland,
1: yeah, I, I've actually got two YouTube channels because I'm kind of schizophrenic, and one is just Hebrew and biblical stuff, and the other is poetry and short stories and stuff.
0: Oh, like that. okay, I didn't know that. Yeah,
1: so cool. probably both will show up, but it'll be easy to tell. Which, which.
0: Okay, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, thank you so much, Eric, for taking the time. And uh, it's been great to hang with you.
1: Thank you, Andre. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And,
0: and um, just
1: if anyone is curious about more or wants to continue talking, just shoot me an email. I I'd love, I'd love talking about it.
0: Great. That's awesome. And yeah, also, Eric is very kindly helping me out. I'm doing some daily Psalms for, for my church. Uh, as a kind of lockdown thing, we're just meditating on a Psalm. And Eric's uh, helping me out with a few of those. We've done two so far and um and so you can catch those as well uh, they're great my church loves eric already so they're getting ready to fire me and uh hire an anglican to be a baptist pastor so that's the um
1: <laughs> i'd be totally open to that <laughs>
0: <laughs> thanks eric yeah okay uh, Yeah. <laughs> i did not mean it that way <laughs> no cool anyway well thanks thanks guys and um uh, I'll see you again at some point uh, with uh, Eric, if you're, if you're open to it, love to have you back to, to, to maybe hone in on some of the things that we've touched on today,
1: but it's been great to hang out with you. Absolutely. I'd love to do that. Thanks, Andre. Thank you for having me.
0: All right. I got to work out how to stop recording yet. One sec. <laughs> where's
1: the, where's the stop recording, but oh,
0: there we go. Stop recording. Okay. All right. That's it. <laughs>